Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model. Addiction experts Mark Sheeran, Stephen Slate, and me, Michelle Dunbar, take on some of the most controversial topics surrounding substance use, addiction, and treatment. If there are topics you'd like to hear us discuss, books you'd like us to review, or specific questions you'd like answered, you can email us at podcast at thefreedommodel.org. That's podcast at thefreedommodel.org. Hi, everyone. Mark, Michelle, and Stephen here for another wonderful podcast episode. And I'm going to start with a story today. So the other day I was eating a steak. It was delicious. And as I I cut a piece, it was a little bit too big. And I started violently choking on it. I mean, horrible. I thought for sure I was going to die. I couldn't catch my breath. And later on, I realized that because the consequence was so negative, I don't think I chose to eat that steak. I think I was compelled to eat it. And, um, and I just want you to know that any time that you eat food and you have negative consequences, I think it's because it's an addiction, right? And isn't that the way we look at addiction today? We think because a behavior has certain costs on the back end, that on the front end, we couldn't possibly have chosen it. And especially if we like heavy substances, we have a strong preference for it. And maybe we have, you know, maybe out of 10 drunken episodes, we have negative consequences six times. You know, isn't it possible that even in those six times we had negative consequences, we still chose to do it? What do you guys think? Well, you, you know that I've, I've written a lot about this, and I just wrote an article about this, that, that uh, we have a tendency to, uh, and Steve wrote about this in the book as well, do a, a reverse analysis, and that is we get high, and we want to get high or drunk, and then bad things happen, and after bad things happen, we look back and we look at those bad things, the consequences, the costs, you know, the trade-offs, and we say, oh, I didn't want to get drunk or high. Right. So we reverse the direction of what actually happened. And um, so when you do a reverse analysis like that, it looks as if, um, you know, just because something has negative consequences, it's an addiction. And we define it as, that's one of the things that, in Western culture, that's that's one of the things that becomes a characteristic of addiction, and that is if it has... Uh, bad consequences or high costs or high costs or, or trade-offs that seem extreme um, but but there's a there's a time issue with this there's an order of things that needs to be looked at and that is at the time on the front end at the time that you're uh, getting high um, you're focused on the benefits of getting high you're not focused on the consequences or the costs or the trade-offs it's not like you don't know them, of course. You know, they don't come out of the blue. It's, it's you know, sometimes bad things happen like that, but, but, uh, but you know the costs, you know. So, um, but you just kind of put that out of your mind because you, your mind can only think of, you know, one thing at a time. So you're going to focus on benefits because the positive drive principle tells us that we're always motivated by the benefits of our choices. Um, so, 
uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it's something to look at. How we, how we look at things is important, and the order in which things actually happen is important when we're looking at them. Go ahead, Steve. You have something yeah, to say? Yeah, I think the, the order is very important, you know, and I think people will say, you know, I have these conversations a lot where, you know, somebody will say, you know, I hate drinking, I do it, and then it causes an argument with my husband or with my wife or whatever. I start to turn nasty at a certain point, right? And I know these things are going to happen, you know, whatever they are. And, and that's, the, that's the part that makes a lot of people feel really puzzled, right? And, you know, I'm like, okay, well, how did, you know, let's say, you know, two hours into it, it starts to turn ugly. And, you know, so I asked, well, what's the first hour of drinking like? Exactly. Did you enjoy that? Did that feel good? You know, and that's, that's what, and yes, okay, well, that's what's driving you to do it. It doesn't make you diseased, you know, it makes you, right. makes you pretty normal, right? And so I want to drill down. So on the one hand, you said that the order of things is important. And it is. Um, I want to drill down further because it, it there's just a basic there's a basic assumption, and it's funny when you guys told me this was going to be the the topic of the podcast. I was like, well, I was just reading about this in Gene Heyman's uh, book, Addiction: A Disorder of Choice, the other day. And and you know, and he looks at it and he says, huh, there seems to be. He, he looks at this same argument. Right, that it, it, where we say, well, somebody keeps using despite negative consequences, and that's irrational, right? right? Therefore, it must not be voluntary behavior, because because why? Because we have this assumption that human beings are somehow rational decision makers <laughs> at all given times, right? Like that that every decision we make is going to be totally rational, right? It, it's and, it, and it's very it's very naive. We are we do have this power to to be rational, rational and reasonable, right? To think through our choices, to make the best choices, right? We're always weighing things out to some degree, yes. But does that mean that we are perfect in that, right? Right. right we just right. I, like that, we, that everything we do is gonna is gonna add up rationally at all times, and well, and no, it doesn't. It's just like there's they always do these studies of what they call delay discounting or something like that. Do you want ten bucks now or fifty bucks next week or something? People are like, oh, just give me ten bucks right now, right? <laughs> like, right. It, right. Is that is that technically super rational? Well, maybe you could make an argument that it is because I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, right? But you know. It, it seems like we're usually going to be alive for another week, right? So maybe it is better to just wait for the fifty bucks. Right? Right. But but we you know we tend to do things like this. We value the present more than the future, right? Um, then there then there becomes questions about whether it pays to be rational at all times, right? Like, um, are you going to clip every coupon? to go grocery sh shopping, right? And save that money. Like my father <laughs> always used to clip coupons 
and he clipped coupons at a point in his life when he was doing very well, you know, <laughs> and and he would sit there all day clipping coupons, save you know fifty cents on a can of beans or whatever. When he was had, you know, he owns two Mercedes of his own. <laughs> I'm just envisioning <laughs> this right had, now, like, knowing your father. <laughs> in a convertible Mercedes for my mother, <laughs> they had four cars together, and he's clipping coupons for beans, you know. <laughs> Uh, is is that rational? Like, is that rational for a guy who's doing that well to waste his time clipping coupons? No, right? Right. Is that right. is that right. the best use of his? Except for if he likes to do that. Exactly. Well, you know, Steve, you bring up a good point, and that is, are, are human beings rational? You know, all the time. Um, you think about starting a business in comparison to working for somebody else that's, uh, you know, let's say you have some skills and, and you have a college degree and you have a good job and then is it rational to strike out on your own and uh, create a business which has, you know, basically five years of risk on the front end, you know? And if we were rational, nobody would start a business because <laughs> it's, right. yeah. it's, it's hellish, right? Why would you take on, you take on so much risk? It's like yeah. the house example that we gave in the book. Right? Yes, yeah. I was just thinking that. Yeah, so, so it's, uh, yeah. The other thing that plays into this whole argument is the judgment of others. When people yes. say, oh, God, I, I hate drinking, and they say that verbally, I, I don't really always believe people when they say that. They're saying it in many cases like I used to because I know that that person is saying to themselves, my God, Mark, look at your life and you're still boozing it up. And, you know, they're looking down their nose at me. And in some cases, my family cared, obviously, and they, they, they struggled to understand why I was beating the snot out of myself. Um, and frankly, it was embarrassing you know, it was embarrassing after the fact to know that I was willing to pay such a dear price for a buzz. And, and, I, and I was rational enough to know that uh, from the outside that looked totally absurd. And I, there was a certain level of shame I carried with it from the judgment of others. So I learned, I learned to say I hated drinking. And uh, when in reality that afternoon I was pounding down another another 12 pack so obviously that wasn't really true was it um so a lot of times we say we don't like getting drunk and high and it looks irrational when the reality is we just really like to get fucked up and and we just can't say so well, yeah. yeah that Let's... is really important that people are saying what they're supposed to say and then yes. they're because of that to say that convincingly you have to think what you're supposed to think, believe what you're supposed to believe, right? So you, you start to persuade yourself that I don't really like this. But then in fact, in the moment when you choose a drink, you are pursuing something in it, something you like about it, right? And, and, and that leaves people totally confused. It I'm sorry, it. go ahead, Michelle. Yeah, the, well, what I was just thinking about was so some popular examples where, where there's this hindsight judgment and if you look at like Tiger Woods, I mean, he's a great example of somebody who was doing what he wanted to do. He was highly successful, you know, and he was engaging in a behavior that for him, they saw benefits in doing. 
a lot of he was having a lot of fun and he gets caught it you know this this whole thing blows up he's somebody in the public eye and so now all of a sudden and we're not, talking about tiger was having he was womanizing affairs. or having an affair yeah he was okay. having multiple affairs and um and he gets caught by by his wife and there's this big blow up at his house and so now hindsight is well I was having these affairs because I have this addiction. Right. And now yeah. I have to go to rehab. And so I couldn't, because I had negative consequences, I couldn't possibly have been choosing the affairs on the front end. I couldn't have possibly been wanting to it, engage it in It had behavior. to be a problem. It had to be a problem. You know, it it had to be a framed, disease. Yeah, it got yeah. framed as this, this involuntary act driven by something deeper within Tiger Woods, some inferiority complex. Absolutely, and, absolutely. Yeah. And that's happening with all this... You know Harvey Weinstein and and all these people coming out and they engage in these behaviors freely and willingly forever and then after the fact because there are negative consequences because there are these costs people don't want to believe wow they really liked doing this and it was hurting people and um, you know so it couldn't they couldn't possibly have been choosing it and so and it helps and then we talk about this in the book it helps people around this person to accept that they couldn't that you know they're doing this they, they couldn't have possibly wanted to do it there's there's actually there was an ad like one of those partnerships for a drug-free america ad or something where they um where they actually say nobody says they want to be a drug addict when they grow up do you remember that one steve oh yeah i referenced <laughs> that one a lot yeah. I want to be a junkie when I grow up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's it's absolutely absurd, absurd. And so so we look at somebody who has all these negative consequences and like a parent will say to me, "Do you really think my kid wanted to get into a, a drug driving accident?" And I'm like, "No. I, I didn't say that. We don't say that here. I think your kid wanted to get drunk and then he wanted to go to a different bar." You know, I, I don't, there was never, when you get on a motorcycle, you don't plan on crashing it. Well, there's there's a difference between intention and results. Right. You know, yeah. no nobody gets in the boxing ring with the intention of, I gee, I really want to get knocked out. Right. Right? I mean, there's two guys in the ring. Somebody's going to get knocked out, but both are thinking, I'm going to win for the glory of winning. Right. Just like the stock car racer doesn't get in the race car with a, a tremendous inherent risk of crashing at maybe 200 miles an hour. But he's not saying, gee, I want to crash. I'm getting in this car to crash. And, and so it's, uh, but here's, here's something that's really sad. When somebody goes to treatment, you go from basically lying to your parent or your wife about, you know, I hate when I drink, right? You learn to lie right. because yeah. you, you don't, but, but you go from lying and knowing you're lying to post-treatment where you now start to believe that you actually are doing something you don't want to do right, against your um, own will yes when that narrative becomes internalized and then you become the addict and the alcoholic that is out of control when you take on that identity you you're drifting into uh an identity that's based in not the truth because 
every time you're drinking or drugging, you're doing so voluntarily because you see the benefits in it at that time. And when you can't recognize that anymore because the narrative is so deeply entrenched within yourself, that's when you get hopeless. So treatment in this way creates hopelessness. It creates hopelessness and then it creates on the other side for the family an excuse that you are hopeless and should be uh, pitied. And boy, that's a vicious cycle. Once you start getting the pity and you're the drinker, that now you're just drowning yourself in this miserable narrative that you're you're actually pitied by people, you're diseased, you're broken, you're out of control, therefore there's no hope for you but treatment. And that's how that's how you become trapped. That's why we call it the, the you know, the recovery trap. Yeah. So there's a few more things that circle around this around this issue, right? So first we point out all of the um Here's everything that's irrational about what you're doing, right? So clearly, right. nobody would freely choose to do this. You you must have this disease. But then, you know, another. But then, another part of it is that well, part of the problem is you're in denial. That's part of the oh, disease. Right. You don't understand that all these bad things are going to happen. You don't understand the full consequences and costs of your usage, right? Right. You don't and, understand you're out of control. Yeah. So, and you know, it's kind of contradicts because we're saying on the one hand people are being willfully irrational. Well, they're being irrational. They, you know, they know better but they can't help themselves, but on the other hand we're saying they don't know better. Right? right. Like well, they, they really don't know what's going on. I think that the I think the den I just got to jump in with the denial part before I lose the thought, and that is um, I don't think anybody that's a drinker really buys the denial card. I, do <laughs> yeah. I, I no, don't think I don't they either. do. I think it pisses you off. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I can remember people saying, well, you're in denial, and I'm thinking, that's such bullshit. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I know. You know, it's, it's so offensive because... Uh, you know, I would say I don't have a problem because frankly, I just wanted to drink and I didn't see any, obviously if I'm drinking, I don't think there's a problem with it. Right. Right. I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm willing to pay the costs. Right. I, I, obviously I am absolutely unequivocally willing to pay the price. Yeah. And, and then they say, well, you're just in denial of the problems it's causing. And I'm thinking to myself, look at I just got- I'm living them. Yeah, I just got beat up in a parking lot two nights ago, right? Because I was loud mouthing off and, and I end up in an ambulance and I'm covered in blood. I, I, I'm pretty aware of, of that consequence, yeah. you know? And, uh, and here I am drunk again. I can remember my sister saying, my God, Mark, you got two black eyes. Your nose is like four times the size it should be. You know, don't you, and you're getting loud mouthed yeah. again. You know, you're drunk and, and I said, yeah, cause I don't yeah. care, cause I don't care, yeah. you know? And uh, when, uh, when yeah. I was signed up to come up to the retreat, in early 2002, this was like in January of 2002, there was a, there was a big waiting list and, and it was going to be weeks till I could get in. And um, I was stealing baby formula, which I had done a thousand times, right? I got arrested doing it. Got out of, they spent a weekend in jail, you know, a long weekend too, by the way. And... <laughs> And then went to court, got released. A week goes by, 
I go to court, I get a sent, you know, I plead guilty and get a sentence of a fine and probation and whatever else. I leave the court. I go out with the same friend I had been stealing baby <laughs> formula with the week before <laughs> for the crime that I just that I just got convicted of. We go out stealing baby formula again. I get arrested again. Is there any? <laughs> to, but you know, I wanted to get lots of heroin and cocaine. Uh, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was gonna live it up before I went to the retreat. Um, that makes sense. I knew, I knew exactly what could happen. I literally just got out of court for it hours before I did it again. <laughs> right, right. And somehow you're in denial. Is that just? Yeah. It's so absurd. It's such ridiculousness. It really now, is. So then let's, what you, you really need to talk about is what is behind, what is really behind that, that I would be willing to risk that again, right? Another arrest. I knew that, you know, that the, that the consequences could only get more extreme, right? So why was I willing to do that? Because I thought heroin was the only thing that would make me feel good. And where did you and learn I, that? Where did you learn that? That heroin was the only thing that would make you feel good? Because you didn't think that when you were a kid, right? There no, were other things, right? I didn't right? think that when I was a child, and I didn't, you know, I learned that through the course of using heroin, learning heroin mythology, and then especially <laughs> by going to rehab. <laughs> you right. know, that, you know, I knew I knew that I really liked it before that. Um, so it's tough. So I, but the, the point is I really believed I needed heroin to be happy. And I think this is the more important part. I thought that I would be miserable without heroin, right? That right. quitting was going to, to be painful, right? Because it, part of the idea is once you take heroin, you never forget that high and you're, you know what I mean? You just want to chase that forever because it's better than anything else. And that's the part that I learned in rehab, right? Is that the alternative was just going to be a life of deprivation. And you just got to suck it up, go to that's meetings right. every day to deal with that. You know, and I, you know, so the what push us, pushes us to those desperate behaviors is these extreme beliefs about the value of substances and the the expectation that we have that, that going without them would have to be awful. And and that 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 whole idea is accelerated so dramatically if you go to AA or NA yeah. uh, because you sit with a group of people, all of whom are deprived of what they want to be doing. And talking about and, it incessantly. Right. The whole purpose of the meeting is to share the misery and the deprivation. Right. As, yeah. some, as some sort of cathartic uh, healing process, I'm going to talk about the fact that I feel like crap that I can't go out and get hammered. And it's, it's an awful process, and it's, it's ineffective um, for obvious reasons. Um, uh, yeah, so I want to I hit on this a little bit more because I actually just finished an article recently about growing up in with the AA mythology as part of my 
like learning it as a young child and the dichotomy of it is that that you know alcohol and drugs are these awful things that can enslave you and take over your life and they're they're just they'll bring you to the depths of despair but on the on the other side of it there are these wonderful things that are the better than anything you'll ever do in your life that they're so wonderful that when you do them you'll never want to do anything else so you know imagine being from 10 years old learning this strange thing um so by the time i'm you know 16 and i get the opportunity to to get drunk for the first time i'm like yeah this is pretty awesome you know and but it, it taints it taints it from go with guilt with guilt and and with this idea that I was born an alcoholic and an addict and I'll be that forever. But I also knew at some point, okay, I'm gonna live it up. Like I had, where you had it that one weekend before you came to the retreat, I literally had it from the moment I took my, you know, I started partying, which was, I've gotta live it up before I have to get sober. Me too, me <laughs> too, yeah. me I too, mean, it's me too. It's so, it's even before I drank, I thought, and I'm, you know, as you go into your teen years, it's pretty natural to start to experiment. And where I come from, everybody drinks basically at age 10 to 12, right? Yeah. And you're smoking cigarettes around 8, 9, 10. Right. You know? and, and already, I, I can remember I got drunk for the first time on my 12th birthday, and I, I, I loved it, right? It was yep. something that I enjoyed. Um, but I was immediately guilt-ridden because I'd been going to AA since I was a kid with my siblings and my mother, and she was a counselor. And I, I mean, AA was such a big part of our, our, our life, um, and I just couldn't ever just go through the cycle of enjoying it and then getting bored with it. Right, right. Which most people do. Which, yeah, and the truth is with, with alcohol and really any other drug, um, over 90% when you factor in age stop. So wh whether they're treated or not, and that's an important thing to, to, to know. Um, so the natural process that human beings go through with substances is that they, that the preference changes with age. And in other words, we get wise and other things become more important and drinking and drugging becomes merely something you used to do. But boy, mm -hmm. you, but you inject that idea of powerlessness, that whole narrative. And then going to AA is so awful mm -hmm. because the alcohol, really, it's funny. You, you bring up something, Michelle, that is so important. Jails, institutions, and death. That's what they, they repeat over and over. If, over you have yeah. one, if you have one drink, it's cunning, baffling, and powerful, and you will end up in jails, institutions, or death. That's what happens to alcohol. You know? And you're going, oh my God, it, you know. And, and, but then, you hear the speaker talk about, I loved it so much, it's the only thing that ever makes me happy. And here's what's interesting. You have these two polar opposite extremes of what the, they think the drug can do for you. And sitting squarely in the middle, why it, it is treatment. Right. Right? The only answer then is if you love it too much, you go to treatment. If you're headed toward jails, institutions, or death, what do you do? You go to AA or treatment. So I've said this for years. All roads in America lead to some sort of treatment. And now with the DSM 18, 20, 25, whatever it is, uh, you have every type of behavior being counted as a disorder or a disease. It's outrageous. 
because of the costs. It's, it's, it's hindsight at its worst. That's what the mental health industry is built on, is if you engage in a behavior, it has high costs, you continue to engage in the behavior. I mean, this is even true yeah. with, with people who love someone who has a drug problem, they continue to support that person. They continue to have them in their life. Maybe this, maybe this substance user is abusive or steals from them or everybody in the outside looks at this person who loves this person and says, you must be sick. There's something wrong with you. You're codependent. You're enabling this person. You can't possibly be choosing it because, because it has high costs. So just about every behavior, maybe with the exception of things that we see as positive, I mean, I know people who run marathons who run themselves right out of their knees, but we don't, do we say to them, oh, you're, you're addicted to running and look at the high cost that you're paying. Um, You bring up the relationship thing because that is such an important thing to bring up. If you, if you take somebody who, a a beaten wife syndrome, right? Somebody who's actually physically abused and mentally abused in these really hardcore domestic violence situations. And you take that woman and you watch the interviews. I've, I've, I've seen this, where they've studied this. Over and over, the reaction of a woman who's never been a part of a treatment or a part of counseling or been put in a home or any, they've had no exposure to that. It's their first time. Maybe they just got their nose broken. You know, I mean, and there's a long history of domestic violence at the household. When they interview these people, they say, why do you stay? And the universal answer is, I love him or her. It's right. the first thing that is said, always. Yep. Well, not, it's like 92%. But it's discounted. Yeah, exactly. You can't possibly love that person. Exactly. Look at how they treat you. Yeah, and, and then the person sort of looks mystified, and they go, I know. So now the blanket of judgment is on them. Now I'm not saying to stay in a relationship. That's no, not the point. No. I mean, that's sad. And, and, but, but the point is, it's voluntary. And people, it's no different than the guy that gets in that race car, right? I mean, there's a chance that he's going to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, the, with the with the people being abused, there's some cases where, you know, they're made to have such fear that right. leaving will yeah. lead but, in their death. Of course. Of course. Have a hard but listen, yeah. but that but still that still means that they think they'll be happier by staying, even when fear is your basis. For not leaving, you're 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 still making the judgment that, yeah, I'm going to be safer if I stay than if I leave, which translate to positive drive principle. I'm going to be happier staying in this relationship than leaving. Right, even though it's putting me in danger. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I feel it's less dangerous to stay than to leave. Right. You know, because because I I lived that for a certain period of time in my in my childhood. You know, where where there was violence in our home, and we stayed because of the fear of leaving. Oh yeah, me and, too. And and you know, yeah. certainly you can call it what you want, but I think when the mental health industry diagnoses and and says, "Oh, you have this syndrome, or you have this this yeah. illness," I, I you know, it's not it's not reality based. That's not helpful, right? No, if somebody's in that situation, not. what's helpful is. Okay, let's see if we can find a safe way for you to leave if that's what you want to yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, if you think, yeah, I mean, more, exactly. It's than a diagnosis of codependency or something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and, yeah. <laughs> um, what did I, oh, God. 
All right, I should shut up. I had an idea. <laughs> I can't think of it. Well, well I think we're, we're kind of at the half hour, so um, I want to I wanna just wrap it up and just say, look at what we're trying to talk about here, we talk about in the book significantly, which is just because a behavior has high costs does not mean it's involuntary. And the entire addiction treatment industry is built on that, the idea that because something is costly, it must be involuntary. Yeah, and, and, and if you follow that logic, the point that I think is important for me to get across is um, once you go to treatment, that's, that whole mythology is accelerated to such a degree based on the judgments of treatment, the judgments now of our society, which cloudies, clouds the, the waters. You, you can't really say to yourself anymore, geez, I do like this, and let me figure out whether I want to continue to do it. And that's, that's the important part. If you want progress, you have to be truthful to yourself and say, I do, I do enjoy this. At some fundamental level, I do enjoy this. Maybe I'm shooting heroin just because I don't want withdrawal. Because not having withdrawal is happier than having withdrawal. If you're at that level, it's important to just say, well, maybe spending three to four days in detox is worth it and be done with this forever. Right. But if you go to yeah. treatment, if you go to treatment, that option may not be handed to you. They may say, well, now you need to be on Suboxone for life or Methadone for life because you don't have the capacity to stop yourself from taking heroin. See, that's, that, that's the sort of mythology that keeps people trapped. And, and that's the point I want to get across, that these yeah. systems keep people immersed in the very behaviors that, that uh, you know, have a high cost. And they don't necessarily have to live in that world anymore. They can change. This, this voluntary, involuntary distinction is not just intellectual crap, right? <laughs> right? right. Like, it's not, you know, we can parse this part, and some people might think, well, what's the difference? They got a problem. Well, the difference is in how you approach solving the problem. That's right. If it is involuntary, somebody's got to fix you, right? They need the to outside. restore your free will in some way or they need to create the environmental conditions that you know since your behavior is involuntary right you're you're sort of like a i don't know a mouse a rat or something right they need right. to create the conditions that are going to nudge you away from drug use um in whatever that might be right uh to keep you around the right people in these support systems to address your underlying issues, right? You know all this crap, right? So it's it's either put yourself in the hands of professionals to somehow restore your free will, which they say they can't do, or to create the 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 set of conditions that will force you to stay sober somehow, nudge you into it, whatever. Or you recognize that this is involuntary. Comes from the way I see my options maybe I might begin to see them differently if I look at things a little bit differently. Yeah, it's the it's difference a, between, know, it's yeah. totally different. The difference yeah. between being a passive um, victim and an mm -hmm. active chooser. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, that that's, if, if you're a passive victim, then you wait for others to fix you from the outside. You wait for, you're right, the conditions to be right. Um, and you're kind of like this, you know, plastic bag blowing in the wind. But if you're an active chooser, 
Um, you get to reevaluate things. You get to figure out how can I be happier? Is it possible that I can be happier making a change? Is it possible that I maybe don't like this, you know, getting high as much as I used to? Is it possible that it's not giving to me what I thought that it was or what it used to at one point in time? So that's why it is so important. And um, that's why we do what we do. Thank you guys for being here today. And um, we'll talk next time. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by the Freedom Model. You can send your questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to talk about to podcast at thefreedommodel.org. If you enjoyed this show, please share it with your friends. If you are struggling or you know someone who is, the Freedom Model can help. Call 888-424-2626 or go to thefreedommodel.org to see which option may be right for you. If you're specifically seeking a residential retreat, you can check out soberforever.net. Once again, that's soberforever.net.